Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. We lost our humanity. We lost our dignity. We got punished for something we did not do. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to our 300th Life Scientific, coming to you complete with audience from London's Royal Institution, a centre of scientific education and celebration for more than two centuries. Hopefully today we're contributing a little bit towards that grand tradition. Now, I propose to consider the question, can machines think? Those aren't actually my words. That question was the opening line of a paper written in 1950 by the great British computer scientist Alan Turing, leading to the test for machine sentience, known as the Turing test. And here we are more than 70 years on, still fascinated by the same question. In fact, it's more relevant than ever, now that artificial intelligence has migrated from science fiction into our everyday lives. We might not quite be at the sentient robot stage, but we have seen incredible breakthroughs recently, from facial recognition software to chat GPT. And so to my guest, Michael Wooldridge is a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford and the director of foundational AI research at the Alan Turing Institute. And despite the dramatic AI threats in futuristic films or even media headlines, Michael is reassuringly positive about this technology's future, saying the most common fears are misplaced. His is an opinion worth listening to. Mike's published hundreds of articles and a number of books on AI. In 2020, he received the coveted Lovelace Medal from the British Computer Society. He advises us to forget the science fiction, insisting the science fact is much more interesting. Professor Michael Wooldridge, welcome to Life Scientific. So what is it about artificial intelligence, do you think, that's always held such a fascination for us? I think it's a dream that resonates throughout human history. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, they had the myth of Hephaestus, who was blacksmith to the gods, who'd fashion metal creatures and then bring them to life to serve the gods in Olympus. Then you've got Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the origin text for basically all of science fiction, as far Mm. as I can see. And so this idea of bringing something inanimate to life really resonates with us. And I think it relates to the idea that, you know, we have children and we lose control of those children because that's always the next part of the story. And yet we still sometimes think of AI as futuristic. You know, it's yet to come. But of course, it already plays a number of roles in our everyday lives. What aspect do you think has had the biggest impact so far? I think genuinely this year is a watershed year for technology. But the funny thing is, AI seeps into our lives in all sorts of ways that we don't realise. I'll give you one example. Automated translation. So this is one of the original dreams of AI. In the US, huge amount of money poured into automated translation. And the big goal in 1950 was to translate from Russian to English for obvious reasons, right? But just at the turn of the century... Automated translation felt like something that was a long way into the future. But quietly, AI delivers Google Translate, 
and a range of other automated translation tools. And people just take them for granted. You know, they get you around your holiday and scop a loss. Or the last time I was in China, they managed to translate the instructions for the air conditioner in my room so I could get to sleep at night. And people don't even realize it's AI. And that's a classic example of what happens with the technology. Yes, we, we adapt very easily, very, very quickly, easy. don't we? And as I mentioned in the introduction, you've previously suggested that fears around the potential threat from AI are in fact misplaced. What do you mean by that? My point there is that we all have some ideas about what AI is and what AI might be because we watch movies and TV shows and we read books and play computer games which portray mostly quite frightening pictures of AI mm. and naturally that's what people gravitate towards the dystopian you know I'd start talking to somebody at a party and tell them that I do AI and predictably within 30 seconds dystopian scenarios the come Terminator up. Yeah, scenario exactly yeah. because they're incredibly <laughs> compelling and we're just very 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 used to them my worry is that whenever those scenarios come up, it sucks all the oxygen out of the room, as one colleague put it. And the stuff that I think is really immediate and that we really need to worry about in the near future never really gets attention. Mm. And that's what bothers mm. me about it. I think, again, those sort of worst-case dystopian scenarios... I can't tell you that there is some mathematical law or physical law which says that they're impossible, but in all of the discussion about them, nobody has ever given me a plausible, realistic scenario for how AI might be an existential risk. While at the same time, I think there are a number of very concrete and real scenarios for how it might be a risk in other ways. And actually, one of the interesting things that we're beginning to see, I think, is to change the discussion from existential risk to catastrophic risk. And catastrophic risk means something really bad happening, but not an existential threat. And I think the, d the debate is much more healthily focused on catastrophic risk well, rather than AI existential. AI that's flying an aircraft. Exactly, that, and it goes wrong. It goes and wrong. Yeah, that's yeah, a catastrophe, yeah. and you know, and it's an awful, awful incident. But it's an engineering problem, and an engineering problem right. that we can face up to, rather than just obsessing about very speculative scenarios, which I emphasise. I've never heard a single genuinely plausible scenario for how AI might be an existential risk. Okay, that's reassuring. I should also mention that, helpfully, for, for those of us who might not be entirely across this technology, you've written a book that can help even the least computer-savvy person, The Ladybird Book on AI. I, I can say from personal experience, having written a couple of Ladybird books myself, Writing those books, it's huge fun, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I, what happened was I'd been signed on to write a much longer book on AI, which indeed has been published. And my agent phoned me up after about a month after we'd signed on to this and said, look, I know this isn't what you signed up for and maybe it's not going to be your cup of tea <laughs> at all, but how would you feel about writing the Ladybird book on AI? And I'm like, what? Do you think I have to even think about that? The Ladybird books are such an iconic part yeah, of well, British you culture. you and I of an age who grew up with them yeah. as, as kids. Well, Mike Wildridge, let's go back then to your childhood days. You were born in Wakefield, West Yorkshire in 1966, the second son to John and Jean. Tell me about your parents. Loving parents. Uh, my dad was a mill manager, um, ended up working for a cider manufacturer. My mum was a secretary, never was a career person. But yeah, it was a very loving household. And somehow I gravitated towards science at a very, at a very early age. And what was it that inspired you? 
difficult to know exactly, but I really vividly remember Apollo. The moon landings was a really, really big part of my childhood. And I remember being given a space suit for a Christmas present, a NASA space suit, not, obviously not a real NASA space suit for a Christmas <laughs> present, but uh, which family legend has it I wore until it was far too small and then my mum had to cut all the, the NASA logos off and put them on other clothes so I could continue to wear them and so on. Um, so I was obsessed with science as a, as a youngster. Uh, of course, computers weren't common back in those days. I gather it was as a teenager that you first encountered one in your local high street. Yeah. So I would have been about 13 or 14, and one of my friends said there was a shop in Hereford that sold computers, and this seemed completely unbelievable to me. This is April 1980, but this was just the beginning of the microprocessor revolution, and there were the very, very first generation of home computers. So we went, he took me to show me, and uh, there was a shop, and there in the window, there was a, a TRS-80 Model 1 computer. I mean, by today's standards, incredibly crude. And it had a green screen and a keyboard and a little cassette recorder to record your programs. So we went in the shop, and the guys in the shop, I find this kind of hard to believe now, but they said, um, yeah, do you want to play on it? We can see you're welcome to sit down. So I literally learned to program, sat in the window of the shop, typing away, there's ab- no exaggeration whatsoever. And I taught myself programming, and bang, something clicked with me. Mentally, that was it. Computers were what I fell in love with there and then. Incredible. You went to the local state school. You did fairly well, I gather, in your O-levels, but you were a bit too relaxed when it came to A-levels. I was an extraordinarily lazy teenager. Um, thinking back on it, I didn't do a stroke of work at all, and it didn't go well. Well, you did well enough. You managed to get maths, physics, computer science, A-level, and you got into Wolverhampton Polytechnic to study computer science. Yeah, and it was a really great education, and I didn't realise this when I signed up, but they focused on the thing that I fell in love with, which was artificial intelligence. Mm. And what really opened my eyes is I spent a year as part of the degree working for the government organisation that ran JANET, the Joint Academic Network. And it was a team called the Joint Network Team, and they were based just south of Oxford, which was my first exposure to Oxford, living in Oxford while I was working south of there. And Janet at the time was a very small network which basically connected universities together, and there was virtually nothing else on it. But working there for the year really made me realise that the future of computing was going to be networks. It just suddenly became blindingly obvious that this is where the technology was going, and it really had, had quite a big effect on me for that reason. Well, Michael, you graduated in 1989. You went on to do a PhD in computation at the University of Manchester's Institute for Science and Technology, which, of course, later merged with the University of Manchester. And this is where you started looking at multi-agent systems. Can you explain what these are? Yes, so I'd had my eyes open to the fact that the future of computing was going to be networks, and I knew that. And then in my final year, as I mentioned at Wolverhampton, I focused on AI, And I thought, okay, so the future of AI must be networked AI in some sense. And that's what kicked off this idea for me of multi-agent systems. Basically, instead of just you talking to an AI program, like the way if you've played with ChatGPT, that you have a conversation with ChatGPT, instead of you having a conversation, that the AI has conversations (coughs) with other AI programs. So my standard example is, I've got Siri on my phone, you've got Alexa on yours. I could phone you up to arrange a meeting or my Siri could phone you up to arrange a meeting, but why doesn't my Siri just talk to your Alexa? And that, in a nutshell, is what multi-agent systems is all about. It's the idea that we have AI programs that are working on our behalf, like 
in principle like Siri and Alexa and so on are supposed to do, that are talking to other AI programs. And it turns out that raises an enormous raft of scientific issues that have been the, the mainstay of my career ever since. Well, you'd met your now wife, Janine, while you were uh, interning in Oxford. She'd moved with you to Manchester. And I hear you both made the most of the local music scene. We're talking the early 90s here. Well, we, <laughs> this uh, older members of the audience are going to remember this. 1989 was the year of Madchester. Um, the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses. <laughs> There's a so few on. grunts of, of uh, murmurs of approval well, around the audience. <laughs> we, we, while I were in my PhD, we lived onto a street that Manchester residents will recognise as Whitworth Street, which is right in the middle of Manchester, and it was the street that the Hacienda, which at the time the world's most famous nightclub, mm-hmm. was actually on, and that was quite an experience. <laughs> well, after your PhD, Mike, your academic career got going pretty quickly. Just days after handing in your thesis you got a job, a full-time job, as a lecturer at Manchester Polytechnic, just as it was becoming Manchester Metropolitan University. That's quite a shift from, you know, clubbing PhD student to full-time academic lecturer. Was it a bit of a shock to the system? Uh, it was There was a financial imperative. The grant ran out. Uh, so I handed the thesis in on a Friday and started work at MMU. And I think I started 1st of September 92, which is the day it became a university, which is quite a big change in mm. British academic culture at the time. And also, MMU was keen to try to establish a research presence mm. because there was this change from polys that was seen as primarily teaching institutions to level the playing field and, and to mm. get into research. And so that was part of the attraction for me. OK, Mike Aldridge, let's get back to the science then. As I mentioned, this is the 90s, a time of really rapid advances in computing and AI, not least, of course, the internet and the web. And here we come to a defining moment in your career. In 1995... You and a colleague, Nicholas Jennings, set out a vision for what multi-agent systems could be in this new world of of artificial intelligence. Just explain what you were proposing. At the time, we were the only people that were working on this in the UK, and people were disinterested in the extreme. Remember, this is really before the internet took off, and people didn't get where you were coming from at all. And so what we wanted to do is to explain what we were doing this vision of multi-agent systems, uh, the idea of AI systems talking to one another, and to explain why this was going to be important. And I think, crucially, to tell people about what the roadmap was. You know, these are the things that we need to do in order Mm. to make this happen. These are the scientific challenges that we need to overcome in order to get there. And this paper that we published, which neither of us, I think, had any great expectations of, got an awful lot of traction, and I think it became the blueprint for Mm. a lot of people that were working in the field, and I think remains so to some extent today. So we're we're both very, very proud of that work. Well, you were enjoying teaching, and you were having this success with your research, but then an opportunity cropped up that you couldn't really turn down. In 1996, you were invited to join Mitsubishi's Electric Digital Library Group in London, Uh, as a research software developer. Yeah, so this is 1996 now. The World Wide Web's been around for about five or six years, and it started to take off, and everybody's eyes in the world have been open to the fact that there was a lot of potential around Mm. the World Wide Web. And I had some friends that I'd met through conferences, scientific conferences, who'd gone to work for this company, and they said, Mitsubishi wants to commercialise exactly the technology that I'd been working on. 
but also this was mm. the beginning of the dot-com boom and it was just an incredibly exciting time. Mm. But of course, as many will remember, that bubble burst quite dramatically in the early noughties. Uh, the company you worked for was one of the many that, that shut down. But as it happened, you'd already decided to get out. You'd returned to academia a couple of years before this time as a lecturer at Queen Mary and Westfield College at the University of London. I think what I realised, and this is just one of those personal things, is that I'd got used to academia. And for all the faults that anybody who works in academia today knows that it has, actually, if you drive yourself, then, you know, you've got a good chance of being successful. Mm. It's quite meritocratic. And by and large, you can do the things that you're interested in. Mm. Well, you didn't stay long in London because in 2000, you joined the University of Liverpool, as a professor of computer science. That was the start of a very busy time for you. You published important work on a new approach for developing multi-agent software. You and Janine welcomed two children. Then in 2008, you were promoted to head of the entire School of Electrical Engineering, Electronics and Computer Science. You stayed at Liverpool for 13 years, but 2013, you joined the Computer Science Department at the University of Oxford, the city where you and Janine first met, uh, the university where you still work today. How did you feel about that move south? Well, Janine, I'd met in Oxford. I say we absolutely fell in love with, with the city of Oxford. And to get a job at Oxford, because it is so competitive, you know, the stars have to just be aligned in the right way. But an opportunity came up and I applied and uh, it's been an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Maybe now's a good time to get back to AI, because over the past decade at Oxford, during which time you also became the director of foundational AI research at the Alan Turing Institute, everyday applications of AI have really taken off. So maybe here we need to address that lingering fear that many people have around AI, conscious machines. Do we need to be worried? Well, firstly, actually, it is not where most of the action in AI is. What gets my colleagues out of bed in the morning is the idea of building AI that can assist elderly people in their lives or AI that can recognise tumours on X-ray scans, that kind of thing. And it's really only because in the last couple of years we've had access to these large language models that you can converse with in a, what seems like a very human way that this is all boiled up again. But if you look under the hood and see how this technology works, you'll realise that actually these are not conscious machines at all. There is no mind no thinking that you're going having. On there. There is no yeah, thinking no, going on there yeah. at all. I mentioned um, Alan Turing earlier, the famous Turing test for whether a machine could exhibit intelligent behaviour, equivalent to or indistinguishable from that of a human. Turing originally called it The Imitation Game, which then you know, became a famous film. What was it that he suggested? It's a beautifully simple test. And the idea is that you, as a human judge, interact with something via a keyboard, a computer keyboard and a screen, it would have been a teletype in Turing's day, just by having a conversation with it, in exactly the same way, by the way, that you have a conversation with ChatGPT. And you can ask this thing anything. You can ask it what it had for breakfast or which football team it supports, and you get responses. But that's all you see. You never get to see what's on the other end. And what Turing said is if you can't tell the difference after a reasonable amount of time, if you can't distinguish that thing from a human being, then accept that it's doing something which is indistinguishable and just stop arguing about it because you can't tell the difference. But that's not enough now. Of course, because we're almost at that stage. But just because it can fool us into thinking it's sentient doesn't mean that it is. 
No, absolutely. And so there's a distinction that's made in AI between what's called strong AI and weak AI. And what weak AI means is that it looks as if it's understanding. It's doing, it's passes the Turing test. It's doing something which is indistinguishable from understanding, but with no claim that it is understanding in the same Mm. way that you or I do. Strong AI, this is the idea that we really will have machines which are conscious and sentient in exactly the same way that you or I are. That is, that they have some internal mental life in the same way that a human being or a sentient creature would experience them. So uh, chat GPT, I don't think, passes the Turing test in a meaningful sense, although it comes far closer than anything that we've seen before. But I say if you look under the hood, you start to realise it Mm. absolutely is not sentient in any sort of deeper sense than that. And here's a really simple way of illustrating that. Suppose you're having a conversation with ChatGPT and you go on holiday for a week. ChatGPT is not wondering where you are. It's not wondering, Mm -hmm. you know, when's Wildridge going to get back to this conversation or should I give up on this and go and watch EastEnders? You know, that's absolutely not what's going on. It's a computer program which is just paused mid-loop. So it's not aware of the world in any meaningful sense. Well, lawmakers have turned to computer scientists and academics for guidance, uh, including you. You've been invited to give evidence to a number of parliamentary committees. Most recently, you were appointed as special advisor to a House of Lords inquiry into AI. What sort of things are you tackling? All the contemporary issues around AI, essentially. I mean, the big question that government are interested in is, what does this technology mean for the UK and how can we use it to improve the UK economy, improve society for the UK? And it's very, very much focused on on those kinds of issues. Not too long ago, there was uh, an AI safety summit, which the government Mm. convened at Bletchley Park, bringing together international government leaders, leaders of technology to discuss what the priorities should be around AI safety. I think we saw a nice movement of the debate onto more realistic risks there. So it was great to see the UK taking the lead internationally, and I think the general view was that that was a good event for the UK. There always seems to be this tendency to focus on the dramatic or the terrifying when it comes to AI, but as you've mentioned, we are on the cusp of some enormously positive advancements, things like medical applications. Absolutely. I mean, I'll give you one example. I'm wearing wearable technology, an Apple Watch, and these are pretty much first generation products, but it can already do ECG scans and it'll be able to do an awful lot more in 20 years time, maybe detecting your stress levels, monitoring your blood sugar levels and and monitoring for Mm. diabetes, potentially technology which can spot the onset of dementia long before another human being could do it. And these are all the benefits that AI is going to bring. Finally, Mike, my producer asked ChatGPT one fun question it would want to put to an expert in the field of AI. And it said to ask you this, if you could use generative AI to create a completely fictional futuristic product or service just for fun, what would it be and how do you imagine people benefiting from it in their daily lives? One of the unexpected applications of this technology is brainstorming. So traditionally, you know, you're an advertising executive and you're hired to come up with a, you know, three slogans for a new banana milk drink. You know, what do they do? They lock you in a room with a, a flask of coffee and a packet of cigarettes, you know, and you're not allowed out until you've got your three slogans for this. Um, but the technology, you can just press the button and say, give me a pitch for a new banana flavoured milk drink and it will just produce one. And then you want another, you just hit return again, give me another. And you can carry on doing that. 
And I think people were rather startled that we think that's something that's creative mm. and there's a debate to be had about whether it is actually creative, but actually the technology is extremely good and there will be mm. killer apps based around using this technology for brainstorming. Well, I should say we also turned that question back on ChatGPT and it told us it would build a dreamscape generator creating personalised, immersive dream experiences for users during their sleep. Sounds like something out of Black Mirror, doesn't it? Certainly something to think about, I guess. That's Elon Musk's next startup company. <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> right then, it's time for some questions from the audience here at the Royal Institution. So if you'd like to ask Mike anything about AI, his career, or if and when robots might take over the world, please raise your hand. So we immediately have a question from a young member of the audience sitting in the front row. What do you think is the cleverest machine in the world? So I'll give you two answers. Firstly, I think just never, ever, ever underestimate the human brain. The human brain is just the most amazing thing in all of creation. And we're not remotely close to understanding how it works. It's not a machine in the conventional sense, but that's just the most amazing creation. But I think the devices that are most impressive to me are these new generation of large language models. This technology is really, really new. It's only a few years old, and it really took us by surprise. It's really rare in AI, just in one generation of software, for it to get much better. That's why I think now this year is a watershed year for AI. Thank you. OK, question from the gentleman here. AI is used for uh, very well for very targeted purposes but there seems to be a sort of undercurrent that we're trying to reproduce as you say mimic um, the human brain's function I mean in the end are we not just going to end up with a very clever human and there are loads of those around anyway so it isn't the case that we're trying to sort of recreate human brains that's not the mission I mean uh, in AI, the technology which really took off this century and which has given us all the progress that we've seen over the last 15 years is a technology called neural networks. And that technology was inspired by the structure of the brain, what you see if you look at a brain under a microscope, which is huge numbers of nerve cells called neurons that are tiny, simple, essentially computational devices. One of my friends is going to really hate me for saying that, but that's the way to think <laughs> about it, um, that are connected in vast networks. So we take inspiration from that, but we're not trying to recreate brains. And I'm certainly not interested in the idea of building an AI which recreates you. That's absolutely not it. What I want to do is build tools which are going to make our world a better place. So not try to recreate personalities or emotions. And actually, emotions is, is, is a big trigger for AI people, you know. Why would we build an emotional machine? I mean, my standard example, why would you build a, a toaster that hated itself for burning the toast? <laughs> I, I see no point in doing that. That's the realm of human beings. You know, so we're not trying to recreate humans in, in any sense. That absolutely is not where the mainstay of, of AI is. Well, that's all we have time for, unfortunately. Huge thanks to our wonderful audience here at London's Royal Institution, and, of course, to today's guest, Professor Michael Woolridge, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you.
1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. I don't think we realized what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown. It was different. It was definitely different. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.